Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. You will tell people that I lived and I died and I rose again and you will be empowered to do this by my Spirit. You're going to take the mission that I shared with you, which is to set captives free, which is to destroy the works of the devil. And that is the church. It's been said that there are five acts in the divine drama. Act one is creation. Acts two, act two, not acts two. Act two is the fall. Act three is Israel. Act four is Jesus. Act 5 is the church. And we're still in Act 5, amen? We are continuing on this shared mission of Jesus that he began and through Pentecost, because of the gospel, through Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, we the church continue this multiplying mission of Jesus to take good news that sets captives free to the entire world. Well, we're in the second half of Acts and we have one message to go. It's been a bit of a whirlwind tour as we've spent five messages in Luke and then five in Acts. And so now I have this challenging task of trying to make sense in a survey form of the last 16 chapters of Acts. And to do that, I've been praying and thinking and reading again and I feel like to summarise it, we might say we learn from the second half of Acts that this shared mission involves intellectual rigour, spiritual power, humble submission and courageous commitment. And we'll start in Acts 17. So if you'd like to turn to Acts 17 in your Bibles. Intellectual rigour. Paul is on his second missionary journey, this time with Silas and Timothy, and we find him in Athens. Now, if there is a place on earth where you're going to find intellectual rigour, it's Athens. In the couple of hundred years before Jesus arrived on the scene, Athens really was the source of a lot of modern-day best practice for government and society. It can be traced back to a couple of hundred years before Christ. Aspects such as democracy, the alphabet, Science and mathematics, architecture, standardised medicine, trial by jury, all come from the intellectual endeavours of those who gathered in Athens. When Paul arrived at Mars Hill, which is just next to the Acropolis, that great temple, great in its stature and position, the temple to Athena, the god of wisdom, the Parthenon, he was really interacting with some heavy hitters there, wasn't he? In the middle of Athens, the bastion of intellectualism, uh, here comes Paul and he starts to engage with them. And let me read Acts 17 from verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? 
Others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. One of the classic lines that you'll often hear from an older Christian who is soon to depart to glory is, all you need to know about Christianity is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's a fair comment. Um, Coming to the end of the race, they look back and they say, you know what, it's pretty simple. Trust Jesus. And of course that's true. The problem with that is it sort of tends to de-intellectualise, to simplify to the extreme Christianity, as though there's not a whole lot that you could learn or process about our faith. Well, Paul in Acts 17 shows us that intellectual rigour is very much part of the witnessing task of the church, not to say that there's not a simplicity about our faith also. Paul in verse 16 says he's distressed by the idols that he is seeing. Uh, Then reasons in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace with the local philosophers. This faith that is travelling all over the world has intellectual vigour. Do you think there was a reason why Paul was chosen? I think there was. He's a very smart guy. He's very well educated. He knows multiple languages. He's a Jew and a Roman citizen. He's trained very thoroughly in the ways of Judaism. And he's able. He has the capacity with the enlivening of the Holy Spirit in his mind to take all that he had been given by God's grace and really explain the Bible, in fact, write half the New Testament. So verse 22, Paul then stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and says, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now, Acts 17 is often used in mission teaching, and it's used as a test case, a perfect example of what in mission language is called contextualisation, where you don't just go to a culture and sort of ram the truth of Christianity down their throat, as it were. You come in with both ears open, and that's what we see in Acts 17. With intellectual rigour, Paul also comes with his ears open and eyes open and he's observing their culture. And he says to them, people of Athens, I see that you're very religious. Other translations say you're deeply spiritual. Sounds a lot like what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an account Or an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Intellectual rigour, debate, but with gentleness and respect. Have you discovered in your life, and maybe in, in your actual own mind and heart, that there are potholes that get in the way of us getting to Christ by with our faith? anyone discovered that? That in the journey towards Christ, people have these big problems 
potholes, you might call them, in the journey on the pathway. It's like, I can't get past how a, a good God could allow suffering. And there are lots and lots of genuine questions that hold people back. Historically, apologetics is not just saying sorry for the faith. It's defending the faith. It's explaining what makes sense about the Bible's truth as it interacts with so many of these challenging questions. So I wonder who God is lining up for you to engage with in an intellectual way. What is your strategy for being prepared for that in growing in your understanding of the Bible? It's, it's honestly a big reason why we do these Bible, Bible reading programs and have some teaching to go along with them. Because we believe fundamentally that if we understand the story of the Bible and immerse ourselves in it, we will find our way to true wisdom. Amen. And we'll understand the story of salvation pointing us to Christ so that we can be ready to give an account for the faith that we have. So what's your strategy? Can I encourage you, no matter how much grunt you feel like you have in your mind, in intellectual rigour, because some of us might say, you know what, I've, I've never been that smart in that way. You know that your smarts are in a different way. Amen. We all have smarts. But can I say, if, if you are a very intellectual person, read and pray and discuss and listen and study and practice that you might explain the truths of the gospel. The gospel to all the world will involve intellectual rigour. The, the Bible, First Peter talks about girding up your loins. It's like get yourself ready in the mind. But it's always also going to involve spiritual power. Now, this is the great irony. The same person who is the most wonderful example of intellectual rigour said these words to the people of Corinth who prided themselves on wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The multiplying gospel witness of the church, and it is a multiplying witness from one to the other, to the other, to the other, throughout generations. It needs intellectual rigour, but it must involve a demonstration of spiritual power, which is typically accessed through apparent weakness. Paul left Athens and headed left on the map 100 k's to Corinth. Then he jumped on a, on a ship and went all the way back, if you're looking at a map of the Mediterranean, right east, all the way back to Israel. Spent some time there and then he headed up through sort of modern-day Lebanon by land across Turkey, all the way to the left side of Turkey to Ephesus. And we pick up his story in Acts 19. Again, we're doing a bit of a survey of the end of Acts. Let me read from chapter 19, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even hankies, handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him 
were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Pretty exciting times to be living through. Handkerchiefs and aprons are prayed over. They even they touch Paul. And quite miraculously, people are getting healed. Sick are getting healed. Demon-possessed people are getting set free. It's all because of the power of the name of Jesus. But somehow it's, it's being passed through this vehicle of uh, clothing and, and, and hankies. Then a bunch of sons of a chief priest try to copy this spiritual authority and they get really punished by an evil spirit. And why was the reason? They didn't know Jesus. Amen. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the one whose name is above every other name and at whose name every knee will bow. They didn't know Jesus. So we are in Act 5. We continue in Act 5 of the divine drama. And we need to know today that if we expect to minister in the supernatural power of the name of Jesus to see captives set free. And now, isn't it confusing in Christianity the mysterious nature of who gets free and who doesn't? I want to believe that everyone gets free, but it's confusing the length of time it takes for God to answer these prayers for freedom. Nevertheless, in the midst of this mystery, we believe there is freedom in the name of Jesus And I'm sure many of us would agree that the closer you are to Jesus, the closer you are to his power flowing through you. Amen? If there's a secret to power in the name of Jesus, it's Jesus himself. It is walking with intimacy in relationship with the one who has the authority. This is the key. Setting captives free, destroying the works of the devil... It requires knowing Christ. The evil spirit answered the boys, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Our power comes from being so clothed in Christ's righteousness that the evil one doesn't really know who he's dealing with. He's dealing with Jesus, the authority of Christ. There is power in the name of Jesus To break every chain. A good song. But more than a song. More than a song. There is power in the grace of Jesus to break chains. And our prayer is that as we asked many times last Sunday night, that we would hear more and more testimonies in our church family of people getting set free. Because there is power in the name of Jesus to break chains. There's spiritual power. The gospel to all the world will involve spiritual power. It must because it's a, it's a spiritual battle and it takes intellectual rigour 
And it takes humble submission, this mission, this multiplying mission that we are all, all on. From Ephesus on his third missionary journey, Paul is compelled by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. He, he says, all I know in this sense of leading back is that there's suffering waiting for me. So it's a, it's a little bit of a challenge for him. And from chapter 21 in this survey of the second half of Acts, if you read it through, you, you, you find he's pretty much out of his control, the, the last part of Acts. Uh, this is a challenge for a well-educated, highly competent, capable man like Paul. He's forced to learn some sobering humility through submission. On returning to Jerusalem, we're told, chapter 21 of Acts, the whole city was aroused. So he's just arrived back. And the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. These, these words roll off the tongue, don't they? While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Paul is imprisoned and throughout chapters 22 to 26, we see him dragged before the ruling council of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men who made these spiritual decisions. And he was brought before them to give account for the claims of Jesus. He's brought before the Jewish high priest in these chapters, before the Roman governor Felix and the one that followed Felix, Festus, and before the Jewish king Herod Agrippa. Throughout this section of his life, it's a multi-year section, Paul just has very little autonomy at all. He's completely at the mercy of the authorities who have him in prison. He is learning about humble submission. But that doesn't mean he's quiet on the witnessing front, does it? And that's the key. Second half of Acts has got a lot of imprisonment. There's a lot of lack of freedom. Yet in the midst of that, he is able to write multiple epistles and witness to very significant people. Have you found that in your life? That the, the witnessing opportunities that we pray for often come in unexpected and unwelcomed situations. I'm looking around seeing many faces who I've seen in hospital or have been in hospital and, and they talk after the fact about the opportunities to witness that happen when they're at their lowest, yes? When you think about when you've been able to witness, hasn't it often been in times where you share about your vulnerabilities and your failures in that, that moment when you're saying, oh, I'm a sinner, but I found God's grace in Jesus. Or you're meeting people just where they're at, not with any airs and graces, in humble submission. It's because when we're weak, he is strong. When we are weak, often the proclamation of the good news is louder. Often we're standing the most tall, proclaiming as a herald the, the great news of Jesus when we're lying flat on our back in a, in a, a hospital bed. 
Parker J. Palmer is a guy who's an academic and he's written many books. And I've only read, read, read one of his books, but it was about dealing with depression. He's a very competent academic. He um, was a head of a, a university in America. He talked about his relentless spiral downwards in depression. And he described it as it being so hard to be able to be ministered to by anyone. He said, the only thing that ever worked was a mate who would come and sit with me and sometimes he would massage my feet. He said, oh, it didn't, no words from Christians, well-meaning words ever helped me. And it was so hard. And he said, I kept on going down and down and down. And he said, I had this one experience where I felt like hit the ground, hit the bottom. Of course, he was thinking about ending his life. He said, I, I realised I can't get any lower than this. And he just had this awareness. Is there anyone else around here? Like I'm, at the, I'm at the bottom of myself. And he said, I had this profound awareness. I looked around and there was a whole community of people there. And he realised the Spirit said to him, I need you to talk about the resurrection here because there's a community of people who are living in the same level of despair. And I don't mean to say that in any way, making what you might be going through something easy to just fix. But when we're at our lowest, we can be at our loudest as we find peace, as we find a way out. Humility, humble submission. I wonder if, um, if you look around, you might see God's fingerprints on where you're at in your life now. And it might be an opportunity for witness more than you think because it's just the way of the kingdom. Intellectual rigour, spiritual power, humble submission and courageous commitment. Courageous commitment. Chapter 27 tells the story of Paul on his way to Rome by sea. He's under police, you might call it, police escort by a Roman centurion with a whole stack of soldiers so let's just read Acts 27, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. They're on their way by boat from Israel back to Rome or to Rome. Uh, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard, then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. And the ship ends up running aground on a sandbank, and everyone barely escapes with their lives. They don't escape, as in prisoners escaping, but they make it through. It's a great story. It's worth the read if you haven't read it. it. It's surprising how many chapters God gives in his book of Acts of the Apostles to this story about a storm out on the Mediterranean. Paul gets bitten by a dangerous snake and survives. It's all very exciting and draining. Draining. It's, it's impacting for the gospel and it's also life-threatening for Paul and Dr Luke who is with him. And I think I said when I was writing in the 5240, if I was Paul, I'd be like, haven't I had enough? 
Just a nice, the sunset could just be going down. Just a nice sailing trip home to Rome. Give my life, run the race. No, I've got to have a jolly storm. Nearly get killed by a, by a hurricane. He finally arrives back in Rome and, uh, or finally gets to Rome. And he goes under house arrest. And he writes the books of the epistles of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon. It's an odd way to finish this glorious book of Acts with a very long story of a dangerous sea journey. And then what seems to be a quiet life for Paul as an epistle writer. If you look into it, it seems like he did get out of house arrest and maybe had a couple of years more mission. Some think he may have finally got to Spain, furthest west that you could go. Um, We don't know for sure. But then he, he did end up writing a couple more letters, 1 Timothy, Titus and 2 Timothy. We're not told too much about it. He struggled at times, Paul, didn't he? You sort of pick up that vibe from his letters. He asked for relief from the Lord in this calling that he had. He complained that he was ill-treated, not just by the pagans, but by his own Christian brothers and sisters. But he kept going with courageous commitment, didn't he? Courageous, grace-fueled commitment. Whether it was on a thrilling adventure across half the known world or sitting in a prison cell cold, wishing he had a jumper as he talks about in one of his epistles. The book of Luke-Acts, the books, the book of Luke-Acts ends with this, verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. And that's called an unfinished symphony. Does anyone agree? Like you read Luke Acts and you get to the end, you're like, so there's something missing here. Like, it's the it's very odd. And what are you left with? It's obvious, isn't it? The answer. It is unfinished. It's still the act. Act five. The church is us. It's been us for the last two thousand years. The acts of Jesus, which is what the acts of the apostles really is. The Acts of Jesus continues today. Hallelujah. We are the book of Acts. That's what Luke was on about. Don't miss it. It's like, just in case you thought this was all about the glory of Paul or call him Saint Paul. No. No, it's about Jesus. And we are continuing the unfinished work. It's an unfinished task. To take the gospel, the fame of the name of Jesus, the name above every other name, to every tribe, people and language. That's the unfinished task. But we're called to be part of it. Tradition says that Paul was beheaded in Rome. A race well run. His last letter, it would seem, to young Timothy, he wrote in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
Paul had a mission to complete, to witness to the world, his world, that Jesus is Lord. I think he really understood a quote that would come thousands of years later. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The Apostle Paul had a, had a hold of that. Have you thought any more about what Virginia mentioned a few weeks ago? I don't know if you were here, but she was talking about this life, the name for Christianity in Acts 5. This life, this Zoe. There's only one life. We'll soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will truly last. She made the comment that this life is not a dress rehearsal and then corrected herself and said, well, it can be a dress rehearsal. I love what Dallas Willard always said. He said, this life is training. This is where you train to reign because we're going to reign for all eternity with Christ. I know that sounds weird. He's the King of Kings, but he invites us to co-manage the new creation with him. It's crazy as his body, the church. We're invited. And you know what? Dallas Willard used to always say, this, challenge, this life that we're in is training for reigning with him. We will judge angels. There's work for us to do. We're not just sitting around playing harps in Philadelphia cheese in heaven. Sorry if you don't know the ad. <laughs> it's a new creation. There are things to do forever. And we are training to reign. This, you, you don't get another chance in this life. Jesus has marked out a race for us to run. And you know what's glorious about that race? It's not the same as the person next to you. It's not the same as the person next to you, but it's a glorious race. Amen? That's what it... That's what comes from getting a hold of this incredible truth that I'm going to live my life for an audience of one. Then whoever I'm serving and loving, as obscure as it might seem, like a teenage girl called Mary, trying to do the right thing as a young Jewish girl, God sees what we do. Like a young bloke called David, who's just out trying to do his best as a shepherd, and the eyes of the Lord look to and fro across the earth looking for someone after his own heart. He says, that bloke there, he's going to be King David. And from him will come my Messiah, the Davidic line. We'll talk about that bloke, David, his name will be talked about forever, the Davidic king. But what was David doing? He just got a hold of the fact that only one life will soon be passed. I'm going to make it count for Jesus. So how about you? We get to take the gospel to the world. Don't worry, I feel exactly like you. It's a big world, God. I don't know if I could do anything to help that. Who am I? I can't do anything. Apparently we can. Apparently we can. Apparently God doesn't care about status of human beings. What is he looking for? He's looking for faith in our hearts. He's looking for available people to say, you know what, in the midst of my brokenness and my failure, if that's what it takes to be weak so I could be used, here it is, God. It's pretty broken. And Jesus goes, oh, I love broken lives. 
Hallelujah. I love broken lives because you've lost all that yucky pride stuff. I can work with humility. Intellectual rigour. See, if you're smart in certain ways, don't let that go to waste. Read up so that you can be used by God with all that intellect and say, Lord, I've done my training. Could you give me somewhere to share it? The funny thing is, he's so funny, the Lord, isn't he? He might go, kids, hope is where I want you to share that. Now, I'm thinking like a big platform, Lord, an author. Authors don't sell many books anyway, often. Um, I think that's the cool thing about faith. It's like get yourself ready to share and then take what he gives you and say, Lord, it would be such a privilege. It's going to take intellectual rigour, spiritual power, humble submission and courageous commitment. Who would agree that to the world, to infinity and beyond, begins with across the room? Yes? It begins with the Lord by his spirit prompting you to go, hey, go and talk to that person. Their shoulders are slumped. You want to go take the gospel to the world? Walk across the room and introduce yourself. What... What a privilege we have to be part of the ongoing mission of Jesus. To our local community, to our city, to an ethnic grouping like the Samaritans that we don't really get on with, and even to the whole world. Can we stand together as we get ready to sing a song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus? And let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Acts. What a privilege it is to read it, have the Bible in our hands, to learn from Luke, Acts, to consider that, Lord Jesus, you would even think that you'd share your mission with us. So unholy, so unworthy, yet clothed in you in your righteousness, we we have enough. Your grace is enough and more than enough. Lord, I pray that from this group you would raise up workers for your harvest. Lord, we pray from this group and those online you would tap shoulders and alter life direction and for some cause complete 180 degree repentance to change the allegiance of their lives to follow the one true Lord of all the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, for some of us, we just need an alter, a slight alteration in direction. Lord, would you make clear with uncommon clarity your calling. Lord, we pray against the work of the evil one who would try to muddle with that. Who would try to, through temptation, draw people away from your holy calling. Lord, we pray for courageous commitment, uncommon clarity. And a great spiritual fervour that comes out of intimacy with you. Lord Jesus, we pray that you might consider this church on our knees asking you to use us. To be a church you'd trust with new Christians. Church you'd trust with resources to be used for the extension of the kingdom of God. Lord, we want to make a difference. 
It doesn't have to be a big church here, Lord. It's just we just want to be a fruitful church. Lord, we want to be a faithful church. We want to lift up Jesus here in the midst of our brokenness because we believe, Lord Jesus, you, head of the church, you, King of Kings, Saviour and Lord, will draw people unto yourself when we do. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. so be it. Amen.